this is the time when we open up God's Word and we do that because, I mean, really that's why we've gathered here, right? I mean, if you came to see your friend or your family, that's that's okay, that's good, but ultimately we've come to hear from God, and we do that primarily through His Word, and so we want to read. We're not going to get through all three of the events of chapter 14 today. We'll get through the death of John the Baptist and feeding of the 5,000, but we'll save Jesus walking on the water until next week. Um, but let's read through verses 1 through 21, and then we'll pray together. So Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. give you a second just to find that. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and they told Jesus. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is almost over. Or is now over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's pray together one more time. Father, you design in your word for us to hear and believe. And I would pray that belief would follow the hearing today. Not in my own heart. I pray that you would strike me with the truth that we find here. And not just strike me with it, Lord, but give me greater portions of your spirit, God, as your grace allows to to put it into practice in my life. And I pray that for my brothers and my sisters here today. Lord, for those who are here, and they might not know why they're here, they may just know that you go to church on Sunday. They may not truly know you, Lord. I pray as as we hear and and think on your word more this this afternoon, this morning, God, that you would move in our hearts. 
This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 13, Jesus told eight parables uh, that described the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's what uh, Jacob was talking with the kids about. Chapter 13 is kingdom parables. They talked about Jesus said what it looks like, what it is, and where it is now. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here now, he was saying. Now remember back to the very first parable that Jesus told in this section. Remember it was about the soils. There are four different kinds of soils. You guys have heard this before. You remember it. Um, I'm not going to go through all of everything about them, but in, in this text that we're in now and going forward, we start to see some of those soils played out in real life, if you understand what I mean. Uh, we're seeing different people's responses to who the truth of Jesus is, and the, these soils come into play, okay? Uh, the very first one is the hard heart, right? The hard heart rejects the gospel. I've got PowerPoint up here. I'm trying to be all fancy and use this. Uh, it connects with the, the blanks on your notes, if that helps. But the hard heart is the first one that he mentioned. And this, this is the, the heart that rejects the gospel. It rejects who Jesus is. And this is exactly the problem that Jason talked about with, with Nazareth last week. They were familiar with Jesus. They were saying, don't we know this guy? Don't we know his brothers and sisters and his mom and his dad? Where did he get all this stuff? And they rejected him. This is the hard heart that we see played out in Herod today as well, as we'll see. The second thing was the superficial heart. And it believes that Jesus is God just as long as he does stuff for him. And this is seen in this chapter in the crowds that Jesus feeds. They ate the miraculous food, but quickly going forward in the book of Matthew, we'll see that they don't last long. There's no real root in these people's lives, in the faith that they say that they have, and they eventually will abandon Jesus. The third one is the divided heart. And it's seen <clears throat> kind of lurking in the disciples' miss, midst, actually, uh, in the person of Judas. He saw everything Jesus did. He was right there, front row seat, Jesus raising the dead, healing the sick, um, and still he rejects him. He did a good job of hiding it under the surface, um, but eventually the wealth and the ways of this world, they choke out the faith, so to speak, of this, really, this imposter. And lastly, the, the good soil, the receptive heart we see evident in the disciples in this story. We see that they begin to understand and grow in their faith of the Messiah. Last week, Jason mentioned Nazareth, a city that saw Nazareth, a city that saw all these miracles, the wonders of Christ. They heard about his astonishing teachings. Right? They didn't understand where he got all these things, and yet they just they wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected him. They could see that he was unique, but they refused to accept the truth about him that he is and was to them the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh. But they rejected that. It says um, that they were instead, they chose to be offended at him. Now, the Greek word skandalizo means to be repelled by someone. 
And that's the word that's used in that, that text. They were repelled by him. They chose to be offended despite seeing all the truth, all the miracles, all the wonderful teaching. They disregarded it. They turned away and they were not changed. And guys, this still happens in 2018. It still happens today. It still happens in the church. Because it's so much easier in our culture to, to just be offended by something and then just write it off as unimportant and insignificant in our life and in my life and in my family and in my people group or whatever it is and then just ignore the truth about who Jesus really is. It's so much easier to be offended. And you guys get that if you're on Facebook for two seconds or more. It's so much easier just to do that. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Because it's not truth to me. But this is the danger that Nazareth fell into. And the danger that Herod falls into. It takes the Spirit of God at work in the heart of an unbeliever to cause them to take notice of God's work attribute it to him, and then follow Jesus because of it. Only the power of God can do that. And thank God, he still does that today in 2018. In our text now today, we see an example of this hard heart. I already mentioned that, uh, the unbelief of Herod Antipas. Now, I I specify Herod Antipas because this is uh, a term that's given to signify where this guy had rule, like the territory that he kind of had authority over. Verses 3 through 12 of this chapter are kind of like um, a historical flashback to what had happened before. And I think understanding a little bit of history, I think will help us see the situation around John the Baptist's execution. And so just real quick history stuff. I'm not a history buff. I know some of you are. You may know this, uh, but it helped me in understanding kind of what was going on in this period. And so uh, Herod the Great, if you'll remember, was the king ruling at the time of Jesus' birth. So he decreed the edict, um, and Jesus was born in Galilee. And uh, so he had three sons. Um, Herod the Great had three sons Archelaus I think I'm saying that right I don't do well with these names Um, Archelaus, Herod Philip and then Herod Antipas who we're concerned with today Uh, when Herod the Great died he had other wives and other sons um, than these three but these were significant to our story today so when he died he split up the kingdom which is normal between his three sons between these three guys Um, Archelaus, Philip and Herod Antipas um, Archelaus was the ruler of Judea, Samaria, and he followed in his father's footsteps. And he persecuted the Jews, and they hated him. And it was not good. And uh, he, it was told that he would get more power and more territories if he ruled well. What went the opposite direction, and because of his tyranny, uh, he was actually quickly relieved of power and actually banished by Caesar Augustus ruler of Rome, okay? Uh, If you'll remember back in chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 20 and 21 specify that Joseph and Mary moved away to Galilee to avoid his rule, okay? Um, After his removal, 
these regions, Judea, Samaria, they were under Roman governors from that point. So think Pontius Pilate, Christ's death and trial. Uh, He was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. He took over after this guy who was the son of Herod, the great. Okay, Um, Herod Philip ruled the areas north and east of Galilee and was married to a woman named Herodias. And then Herod Antipas, who we're talking about today, ruled Perea and Galilee during Jesus' ministry. And so these two come into play here. The problem with John the Baptist started, why he was put in prison to begin with, as you can hear from the text, was he started against Herod Antipas because Herod had taken... knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So there's, a, there's confliction in the heart of Herod Antipas. He's not quite sure what to do. His, his now wife wants him dead, but he doesn't really want to do that because he kind of is afraid that people like John and they'd get mad and try to overtake him if, if he killed him right away. But he wants to please his wife, you know, because husbands want to do that. And so Herod has a birthday party, and he invites a bunch of people, and he has a big celebration. And at this party, he has uh, Herodias's daughter dance for them, and for his, for him, and his. Yes. But Jewish just in this way quote a very wicked and pernicious man. So we can just kind of fill in the blanks, maybe, of what happened there. But Herod was so pleased at this birthday celebration that he looked to her and he said, Girl, I'll give you whatever you want. Up to half of my kingdom is yours. So behind the scenes, she is persuaded by her mother, Herodias, who hates John the Baptist, and she says, Light bulb, now's my chance to get rid of this guy who is speaking out against my relationship with the king. So she convinces her daughter to ask for the one thing that would be promised to her for John the Baptist, I mean, literally his head on a silver platter. I think that's where this term comes from. That's what happened here. That's what she wanted. And so, you know, it just it broke my heart as I was reading in, in Matthew 14, Verse 9, it says, And the king was sorry. This is a guy he liked to listen to. He, he, it, he knew, the verse from uh, Mark that we read, reveals that Herod knew him to be a righteous and holy man. He was, he, he was puzzled when he listened to him, but he liked him. He was conflicted. And so when I read that he was sorry, but... Despite the confliction in his heart, he went ahead with it anyway. And that quickly, a faithful man of God was silenced. Head gone. Voice stopped. Why? Because John was calling out sin where it was. Now, let me point out something that we kind of passed over earlier. Um, that kids, this is something that you'll want to listen to. Uh, John, uh, Herod admitted in our text at the very beginning of chapter 14 
to his servants that he believed that Jesus was John the Baptist, like, reincarnated. Come back from the dead. And I really think it freaked him out. Right? Why would that freak him out? Because he had John the Baptist beheaded. And now we've got a guy who I, obviously he identifies as another guy who is righteous and holy, just like John the Baptist, and he is scared that his past sin is all coming back around to get him. And so he is saying to his servants, I think this is John the Baptist in the flesh. And Emery, I don't know if you heard me talking about this as I was studying this week, but I think he was scared. I think Harry was freaking out. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to think. And I think this is kind of a, a textual clue to pause for and, and think about. Herod correctly understood that both John and Jesus were righteous men and holy men. And he admitted that John and Jesus were both capable of doing amazing things. He'd heard about them. He'd seen them do these things. And yet, this realization did not drive him to embrace truth. It drove him to harden his heart, just like the town of Nazareth did, and reject Christ instead. And silence the speaker and reject Christ. This, the realization that Christ is different, is not normal, is unusual, is unique, is not necessarily salvation. It wasn't for Herod. It wasn't for the people of Nazareth for the most part. And, and some people are going to be offended by truth, and some recognize the truth, and they're still going to turn away. But the reality that Jesus had, has painted here is that a hard heart does not make good ground for the gospel. It can't. Because they will be choked out, or it's too rocky, and they can't lay hold of it. And so, Jason, I'm going to quote you from last week, brother. Um, this, this stuck with me. And, and he said, familiarity without faith is, a da- is the most dangerous place to be. And that's so true. And I, I said this to our students in Sunday school this morning. This, this is a, as a pastor, this is a fear of mine for, for, my, for the church, for our church. And not just ours, for, for, for Bible-believing churches across the world. That we have people that are familiar enough with the gospel to be able to tell you the steps, but it all comes from here and not here. And that's, that's dangerous for you, and it's scary for Christians to think of ones that we love that are in that place. And yet, the world around us, it, it, it makes us easy, it makes it easy to see incredible things and then just instantly like dismiss them. Right? To move on to the next amazing thing. It's ingrained in us from the beginning, especially with kids being raised now with the way that technology is. I mean, you can watch one incredible video on YouTube and then the next incredible video plays automatically right after it. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. That's am- and it's just more and and we become saturated with great stuff and we miss what's truly great. And so I want to caution us today 
not to fall into that trap. We use terms like great and amazing and fantastic and unbelievable, and that's those are just words. Awesome. Those are just words. They're synonyms to describe similar things. And yet, in reality, those rightly are attributed only to God himself. Because the things of God, the things that Herod was seeing Jesus do and had seen John do, were coming from God himself. And he saw it, he recognized that that was true, but it did not change him to be saved, to trust in Jesus. We are conditioned to disregard the unbelievable. To just pass right over it. We're bombarded by so many lesser great things that really truly incredible things have lost their luster and become commonplace and worse yet, forgotten. Men with miraculous powers are easily dispatched of and forgotten in Herod's day. And that's what they did. They didn't like what John had to say. He was speaking the truth. What's the solution? It was much easier to chop his head off than to change. Because the heart doesn't want that, apart from Christ. But when the kingdom of heaven comes, as it was with Jesus in this day, I pray that it comes in all of its glory and that God would cause us to take notice to see miraculous, wonderful, godly things and stop what we're doing, put down our phones, turn off the TV and say, wait a second, God, what is this now exactly? Is this you? Because if it is, brothers and sisters, anything that's on our phones or on the TV are less of importance than what God is doing. Don't be so saturated by what the world says is great and awesome that we miss what's truly great in the work of Christ. And, you know, not just, I pray that God would cause us to take notice, but not just take notice, but that we would be so captivated by the greatness of God and all the things that he's doing and the truth of his word that it would cause us to look away from these earthly enticements and give ourselves over to the truly incredible work of Jesus our Savior. Speaking the truth, I'm going to get this up on the screen, speaking the truth in a fallen world will be costly. It's going to cost you something. It's going to have consequences. Because see, we sang the song this morning, Standing on the Promises. If we really live our lives like that, if we really stand on the truth of Scripture... Today, in our world, it's going to cost you somehow, some way. I don't know what that might cost you, but I could think of a couple examples. I mean, you could lose a friendship over this. You could lose a relationship with a family member. Um, yeah, there's a very good chance that if you don't lose them, they'll be real strained in the process. Uh, your biblical convictions may cost you a job. It may. You may be being asked to do unethical, ungodly things, and when you take a stand on the promises of God and the truth of His Word, you may lose that job. Or ministry. It's, it's a possibility. We've seen it. When we seriously begin applying God's Word in our day-to-day life, I think as we ought to be doing, we're going to start feeling the pressure. 
It's going to happen. Uh, you cannot read through one of the Gospels in Jesus' ministry without seeing this played out firsthand. Now, John the Baptist boldly challenged the ruler of his day about his sinful, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, and it cost him his life. Now, notice that I did not say it cost him everything. It cost him his life. It didn't cost him everything because there were eternal rewards waiting. God the Father was just beyond this life and met John with enthusiasm because of his steadfastness in the truth. In this life, you know, if you know anything about John the Baptist, he had so very little. Camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey. He had so little in this life. And you could even say, well, he didn't really have much to lose, did he? You wouldn't be wrong. But he didn't lose everything because everything was already waiting for him. Christian, you can be sure of this. As long as you and I call for sin for what it is in our culture, it will be costly. Bow to my family or go with God. What do we do? Family pressures are tough. We want to please them. We love them. Or to prove and give authority to the fact that he was God. But here I think, not only does that, but it helps us understand the shift that was going on. Jesus was starting to, to do something with his disciples that he hadn't done much before. Um, this is the only miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the only one that's recorded in all four Gospels. But each Gospel writer approaches it from a different perspective and uh, emphasizes different things about it. Okay, so when you read this in Luke and John and Mark, it's going to be similar things, but a little bit different. Um, that's not discrepancy on the part of Scripture. That's just a different perspective that these guys had. These guys relate them from their perspective. So he gets out on a boat and crosses this body of water, and the people in the towns, they hear he's where he is and what he's doing, and they go on foot, and they meet him there. These people are excited to see and hear Jesus. And so they meet Jesus there, and I want us to notice something. It says, you know, despite the fact that he wanted to get away, that they came and they, I don't know if I'd say they were bothering him, but surely being pressed by all those people and having people kind of um, expect things of you gets exhausting and tiring. And instead of frustration and shortness and anger, what does it say? It says he had compassion showed mercy and he healed their sick he did what they asked it's interesting I mean he could have said leave me alone I want to mourn my friend's death for just a day for just a couple of hours please he didn't do that he didn't send them away he didn't order them to go back home and come back tomorrow even though Jesus knew that this was I think, more of a superficial attachment at this point. He's still... Here's where Jesus really starts to get the disciples involved. 
Okay, and this is where I really want us to think through in our context of church and in life. So the disciples come to him, and they remind him, like he had forgotten, Jesus, we don't have any food for them. And it's dinner time, and it's late. Uh, we don't know what to do, so send them away to go get some food. And Jesus says, nope, you feed them. You give them something to eat. Now, put yourself in the disciples' place for just a second. Jesus, you've seen this guy do incredible things. All of a sudden, he's having a memory problem. Right? We didn't bring anything for this. Uh, You instruct us not to take anything on our journey. Really. So what what, what is happening here? He says, you give them something to eat. So, pop quiz... It's true or false, it's easy. True or false, Jesus knew the disciples didn't bring along enough food to feed thousands and thousands of people. It's true. Jesus knew that. I don't know if the disciples knew he knew that. Um, But if that's true, then why would he say to do this? Why would he tell the disciples, you give them something to eat? Jesus is teaching them here. He's teaching them to look beyond themselves beyond their resources to his. Beyond what they could see and put their hands on and feel in touch, Jesus is saying, look past it. Look to me. Instead of looking around at the enormous group of people, like the disciples did, what does Jesus do? Where does he look? To heaven. People sit down, takes, he looks to heaven blesses it and breaks it and starts passing it out. He looks to heaven because that's where the Father is. That's where the giver of all good things is, the provider for our needs, the giver of our daily bread is. He was teaching the disciples. But notice this this struck me. Actually, uh, I was reading a commentary and they said it in there and it just struck me. Notice what Jesus does not do at this point. Jesus does not serve a single person. He doesn't take some of that bread and the fish and start handing it out, handing it out to people. He doesn't do any of that. Now wait, now wait a second. Philippians chapter 2 is pretty clear. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So why didn't Jesus just jump up and start, you know, slinging fish and chips around? Why didn't he do that? If he was the form of a servant, why didn't he do that? He told the disciples, no, you give them something to eat. He also, just point out, Jesus doesn't pick up any of the leftovers either. Why? Jesus was teaching. He was, it's it's like the disciples were standing in front of the Niagara Falls and couldn't find anything to drink. Right? God in the flesh, giver of life and everything, and they were wringing their hands. Oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed all of these people? This isn't going to work. Jesus was teaching them about himself. The kingdom of heaven is here, now, where I am, he was saying. The old treasures of the prophets and the forefathers, they point to me. Anything in this life pales in comparison to me. I have the power of God to heal, to restore, to provide for my people. The disciples weren't just reading 
old manuscripts about a gracious redeemer and savior anymore and provider. They were seeing it in real life, right before their eyes. So Jesus is using this opportunity to teach. And here's what he was teaching people, teaching them that we need to understand Jesus meets needs in us, brothers and sisters, but he also wants to meet needs through us. Right? Because the, the truth is, and David Platt says this in the commentary I was looking through, he says, if the point of this story was only to show Jesus' sufficiency, he could have called down bread from heaven right into people's laps. The people would have seen and maybe even recognized him as the new Moses. However, Jesus not only prays for the Father's blessing, but he also calls his disciples to do the serving. So yes, Jesus alone is sufficient to meet needs in us. But he's also gracious to use us to meet needs in others. Church, this is our God. One who loves us and calls us out, not in order to live a life of comfort and of ease, but one of service and sacrifice. I don't think I'm out of line when I say this. If you're saved you're expected to serve. If you're saved, you're expected to serve. If God has saved you, he has things for you to do. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Ephesians 2 is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And this comes after... Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians that they did nothing to earn their salvation by grace through faith. In fact, verse 8 starts that way. Read along with me. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, good works are not an attempt to impress God. For who is proud enough to think that we could do that? We don't serve so that we get brownie points so that God loves us more, or God loves us better, or God continues to love us or that we work up enough, we've stored up enough good things that these few last little ones aren't that big a deal. That's not why we serve. That's not what good works are for. We pursue good works in response to God's good work in us. That's why we serve. That's why we give of ourselves in a life of service and sacrifice. Because of his grace and salvation, I now desire to do good and to go. That's what it's about. There are opportunities, just to get real practical, can we do that today? Just to get real practical, there are opportunities to do good and to serve right here at church. So I'm just going to mention a couple. This is a shameless plug for volunteering at church. I will admit that right from the start. We are in need. Brock has made the need for some teachers in our kids' Sunday school class. There's still a need, as far as I understand. Would you pray and seek the Lord in this? 
maybe God would have you dedicate a year's time. I'm going to give this year to serve families in the church by teaching Sunday school. Uh, we need folks to serve in our kitchen committee. We need folks to serve on our outdoor landscape committee. Um, Mike and Jacob and Brock are all in the process of asking for volunteers for specific things. They're on the nominating committee for Sunday school and other variety of things. Talk to them afterwards. Guys, just raise your hand real quick in case somebody doesn't know who I'm talking about. If the Spirit leads you to say, I don't know where I want to get involved, where's a need? Talk to one of these guys. Or talk to me and I'll get you to one of them. Um, now, if you know me, if we've, have, if, we've, if we've had conversations about serving at all, I hope you know and understand that I'm not the kind of guy to come up here and pressure and guilt you into doing something that God's not really calling you to do. Because if you're doing it to make me happy, you're going to be really disappointed in my response, and you're going to be really unfulfilled in the job. Because you shouldn't do anything to make me happy or somebody else sitting in the pews happy. You can serve them by doing this, but your aim is to make God happy. I'm of the belief that if a ministry is going to continue, God's going to provide the volunteers and the staff to to do that. Okay? The truth is that if God has brought you to Ramsey Creek, you have a function in this body. I was just talking with some folks about that this morning. We are not all gifted in the same way. Praise God for that. Because if everyone was like me, there'd be a whole lot of stuff that wouldn't get done well. A whole lot of stuff. If everybody was like you, it'd be the same thing, just different things not getting done well. Because we need one another. And God has called us to serve. And Jesus was teaching the disciples to serve and to be compassionate and to show people where truth and energy and supplies and substance, where that comes from, it comes from the Father. But he chooses to use us in doing this. And so if God is moving you towards serving, please make sure that you're serving God and you're not listening to my voice. But if it's God, jump in and serve. Jump in and serve. Now many of our things here at Ramsey Creek are for members to serve because we've talked with those people about their beliefs about God and scripture and we trust them to teach and do those sorts of things. So if you're not a member of our church, there are opportunities where you can, we can get you plugged in, but it probably won't be in a teaching situation or a leadership role. But maybe this is God's way of saying, hey, maybe you need to join with the church and get involved so you can serve in the right way. Let the Lord speak to you on that. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same thing for the rest of your life. Because I think we get into this sort of mindset <laughs> as Christians, as Baptists, I don't know. This is the only church I've known for 15 years. So um, it just happens that it seems like once you say yes, you feel like you're stuck for f- 10 years. It doesn't have to be that way. You, you say, God, I'm going to give you this year to serve in this way. And at the end of that year... Hopefully you've got a clearer picture. Yes, this fulfills what I love to do. I'm serving God. This is where I know I'm supposed to be. Or it's the opposite. We're like, ah, that's not where I'm supposed to be. Then you get the opportunity to serve somewhere new and see something else maybe God has for you to do in the church. Because a family with young kids is going to serve differently than a, than a retired couple in the church. 
And that's okay. We need that. We need everyone here. God's got a place for you if you're saved. But if you're not a Christian, you've not surrendered your life to his control, you don't have a gift to offer the church. That's just the truth of Scripture. You don't have a gift to offer this church or any other church, really, because first you need to understand the greatest gift that was given to you. And you need to trust Christ. You need to trust Jesus' all-sufficient payment for your sin. This gift of repentance and faith is yours in Christ. See, Christians who serve, and hopefully this, hopefully you can think of places that you're serving currently or have or, or whatever, and you can say this is true. Christians who serve do so out of an overflow of Christ's love in them, Christ's love for them. We serve, we love, we forgive because God's already done that in my life and in your life. And that's where it comes from. Without Christ, there is no overflow to give. That is a prerequisite to godly service. And so I pray that God is moving in your heart today and that can be you today. If you don't know him, if you say, serving sounds cool, it sounds good, but I don't really know who Jesus is, that's what we need to talk through first. That's what we need to get straight first. We want you to serve, but we want salvation confirmed. We want you to know you're saved and belong to the Lord before we do anything. And I would just simply say today, don't delay. Today is a day of salvation. There's no need to wait. And if God, Christian, especially church member, if God's moved in your heart today to serve in some way, teaching the kids, landscape committee, kitchen committee, as a deacon or something in our church that serves, don't wait. Jump in. If it's, if it's indeed the voice of God, jump in and serve. And brothers and sisters, as we serve, as you see others around doing those things, be encouraging. Um, as I read before from Hebrews, let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's be that kind of a church. Let's pray. Lord, I fail in that so often. But thank you for your grace. Lord, as we have looked at uh, how you fed thousands of people with so little, so many things rush in our minds. But we see and have seen today, Lord, that you have a place for us in the body. Just like the disciples were given this job to do, to learn more about who God is, about who Jesus is. Lord, when we serve in the church, the same thing happens in our lives. We see you better. We understand you more clearly. And it works all in a circle to where when we see you better and understand you more clearly, we want to serve you more. And so, Lord, I pray that you be moving in our hearts. God, remove distraction, remove lies of the enemy that say... I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the resources. God, I pray that you would just make us available as your people and that we would, as your church, be encouraging to one another and to love stirring one another up to good works. And Lord, I pray the same for me, that I would be an encourager, Lord.
and that when we walk through these halls that we are excited to see one another and ask about ministries and life and, and God bring us together under the Lordship of Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.